0: Impact. Jesus commands believers to be salt and light in every aspect of their lives. Join us today as Senior Pastor Dean Hunter speaks with believers who are making an impact for the cause of Christ and through their testimony are encouraging others to impact their world. Welcome to the Impact Podcast with Pastor Dean Hunter. My name is Dean Hunter and uh, we appreciate you listening again to our third podcast. We've had One guest so far that um, was Pastor Curtis Parker, who we um, went a little lengthy and made it a two-part series. And so um, today is really our second guest. And um, just a little reminder about the Impact Podcast and the purpose of this podcast is to introduce our listeners to people that you may know or may not know who are making an impact for the cause of Christ uh, in their community Uh, in their church and in the country, and um, with that in mind, Jesus taught us to be salt and light wherever we go, whatever we do, and um, my goal, our goal, is to highlight men and women of faith who are practicing what they preach and being involved in, like I said, their church, their community, making an impact for the cause of Christ, and today we have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, many of you who listen uh, may know Our guest, and some of you may not, and it would be my joy and pleasure to introduce to you uh, this man, uh, Dr. Mark Harris, uh, pastor of Trinity Baptist Church right here close by in Mooresville, and um, along with being a pastor, many other roles that he has played. Uh, Dr. Harris, it's great to have you with us today. It's uh, my honor to call you a friend and a mentor. and appreciate you being here today with us. Dean, I'm honored to be here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me and um, boy, it's a tough act to follow if you've already had Curtis on here oh, first yeah. thing. Yeah, an, an hour and a half <laughs> oh, straight. Oh, wow.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you definitely know him and, and know his um, history here around our church, and we thought he would be the, the best guest to start off the podcast to get people interested in, in uh, what we're doing here. And uh, I know a little about you, or maybe a lot about you, mm-hmm. and uh, many people who know me maybe know a little bit about our relationship, uh, go back to, it's been well well over 10 years ago now, we were introduced to each other in some different capacities, and um, I know a lot about you, but I wonder and how much our, our guests and our listeners know, and so I just want to start from the beginning and allow you to tell a little bit about yourself, maybe your background, your family, uh, so that um, someone who doesn't know Mark Harris would would be able to, to know who you are.
1: Well, <clears throat>
0: thank you for that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a native of North Carolina, born and
1: raised uh, here uh, in North Carolina, actually Winston-Salem. I tell folks as a Baptist pastor, is appropriate, I was actually born in Baptist Hospital right. uh, in Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. They were still delivering babies uh, back when I was born. And uh, born and raised there, I grew up, mom and dad, uh, I was the youngest of five uh, children, in fact, the first four were born within seven years of each other, and then I came along ten years after the last one. So I was the uh, oops, the surprise, you name it. My my siblings used to tell me I was the oops. Perfect. But uh, mom and dad said I was just the surprise blessing. But anyway, I, I was uh, very, very thankful to grow up in a Christian home And uh, born and raised at College Park Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. In fact, Mom led the choir there when I was young and before they called their first minister of music uh, that came there. And uh, it was just a great dad. Served as a deacon uh, and coming up in the church. uh, Came to know Christ as my Savior uh, when I was 10 years of age. And so, um, you know, the faithful pastor. uh, I'll never forget, actually, on a Saturday night when some friends next door had uh, been to their church. They'd been to an independent Baptist church where they went, uh, came, and we were just talking out in the backyard uh, that Saturday evening. And they had had a weekend revival. And I said, where have you guys been? And they said, we've been to church. I said, on Saturday night? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, well what were you doing? And they said it was a revival. And um, I guess the Lord really pressed on their heart because uh, one of them, I remember, uh, you know, said, man, the preacher talked about Jesus coming again. And I'll never forget that uh, when Barry said that, um, and uh, Terry, his brother, actually uh, talked about more detail of when Christ was going to return. And uh, I went into the house uh, later that evening and uh, took my Saturday night bath and uh, got ready for bed. I'll never forget coming back down the stairs uh, after I'd gotten in the bed for a few minutes and telling mom and dad that, uh, that... Terry and Barry had, had talked about when Jesus was coming again, and uh, they asked me if I was ready. And uh, nobody had ever asked me that before. And um, I'm not sure that I am. And so I I used to harass my parents a little bit and say, you know, I'm grateful I did not die that night uh, because I may have spent eternity (laughs) separated from the Lord because they didn't lead me to faith in Christ that evening. They gave the answer that many parents oftentimes give, well, listen, tomorrow morning when we get to church, you need to go talk to the pastor. And, uh, and, And I did. I went that Sunday morning, knocked on the door, went into my pastor's study, and he walked me down the Roman road. And right there... Uh, at College Park Baptist Church uh, on Polo Road in Winston Salem, I accepted Christ as my Savior.
0: Wow, yeah, I, um, I got saved at ten as well. But, Did you really? Yeah. To your point, though, uh, maybe it, it's a question already about the role of families and uh, parents. You you made the comment that you're uh, you harassed your parents mm-hmm. about maybe not leading you that night, and um, I think it's one of the one of the joys of pastoring is when a family when you hear about a child teenager accepting Christ and their parents actually led them to Christ at home. Absolutely. Um, with that in mind, maybe in the church today, uh, the role of families and kind of just dive right into that and how important that is oh, for families to be involved. It's crucial because
1: if families are not engaged and, and parents aren't engaged with their children uh, from beginning to end, I mean, Scripture gives us the the very clear admonition uh, that we are to be training our children all the time when you get up in the morning when you go to bed at night when you walk along the way whatever you're doing you're you're just having a chance to spend time and to bond and to build your life with your children and one of the things that is unfortunate in our culture today I fear is so many things as far as activities are are kind of planned for our children that those activities we tend to think that's That that's a way that we're spending time with our children. Well, maybe to some degree it is, but a lot of times those activities are taking the place of leading your family to worship. I just think leading your family into the house of God uh, each week and for them to see and know that you as a family are worshiping together, you're singing together, you're serving the Lord together. I mean, there are just overwhelming statistics of when a child Is actually led to church by their family, not sent, not taken, not dropped off, but are led by the family into the house of God from the youngest age up. It makes a major, major impact, and I I see it all everywhere, every day.
0: And and in the as a pastor in a local church today, what I mean, I I have an answer. I see it. What What do you see as kind of the trends, positive, negative? Do you you see that? I, I know the answer is somewhat rhetorical. Do you see the the lack of family, the lack of family leadership, and, and the impact that it's having?
1: No doubt. I, and I think it, it comes down to priorities. And I think your family helps you, your parents help you establish priorities in your life. And I think that that, that biblical worldview right. that we want people to have, as George Barna's made it very clear, it, it's going to happen from anywhere from 13 months to 13 years of age. And really the, the worldview is already formed by then. Whether it's going to be a biblical worldview or not is really a matter of whether you're going to pour into those children. But a lot of times we think we've got to do a lot for youth ministry. Well, we need, do need to have youth ministry in our church, and it's important. And you've got to catch people where they are at any point in their journey. But the reality and the studies continue to show that before they're even in the youth group, a worldview's already been established yep. in their lives, and yep. that's that's critical.
0: Yeah, I heard somebody recently, and I, I don't know who it was, I read or watched, and I had never heard it before because I'm, I'm big on worldview, mm-hmm. um, biblical worldview, preaching uh, the first few months of this year I preached on perspective and how that affects our, our worldview. And the person said, um, a child develops a world picture between the ages of zero and five, mm. but a worldview between five and 15. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure the, the uh, analytics behind it or the research behind it, but it makes perfect sense that they are developing something, some type of view even early. But then, and, and we know the stats of um, after a child's teenager and their response to the gospel, what they do after college, and it kind of makes perfect sense that, that we are teaching them young uh, the ways, as Scripture says, uh, the as you were talking about events, the word competition comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Everything's competing for our attention, competing right. for our children. Uh, even personally, I, I tell people I was a youth pastor for 12 years, as right. you know, right. and um, it's just a different world that we live in where there's so many options. There Kids have so many more options to play different sports, clubs, whatever it might be. Um, I think when I was 10 years old, it was – Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and maybe a sport or two. Oh, yeah. I
1: I remember when I was growing up, when your parents wanted to expose you to all kinds of sports and see if you could figure out which one you really loved or liked or play them all. And I remember you couldn't even start in Northwest Forsyth because I was born, as I mentioned, in Winston-Salem. You couldn't even play in Northwest Forsyth Little League until you were at least eight years old. I mean, eight's when you started baseball. Well, now – IMCA, all these different places, start them in preschool. uh, At five years old, you're picking up in T-ball. T-ball started at eight years old. Mm -hmm. That's when everything got going. And so we've kept ramping it back and back and back. And I think as parents, again, it comes back to helping your children know what's important and Mm -hmm. what the priorities need to be. And you got to know where to draw the lines. And we were faced with that with our children. I mean, all our kids are obviously grown now. We have three children. And uh, all three are married. All three have children of their own. We have ten grandchildren, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it's interesting to me because the priorities that that we wanted to pour into them, I, I take a lot of gratification in seeing them living that out with their children uh, and leading them into the house of the Lord. All three of them are active, and they have their families active in church. And to me. That's important that, that they're they're showing them those priorities. But I, I constantly, with our family time together and when we're on family vacation, we, we have those conversations. In fact, I, I was mentioning to you even before we started, we just did kind of a Heritage Week. Uh, we do uh, something every year. It's kind of become called uh, cousins camp because they're kids, all 10 of these grandchildren, but we only take the oldest ones that are able to comprehend and kind of pour into them some of the family history and family heritage. And to your point, when we think about family, the important role that that plays, and even from the youngest age, now we, we take them from age five, so we had six of our 10 just the first part of this week. Uh, from age 5 to age 8 that were part of this. And we were talking to them about some of our family ancestry and a time period. It's an opportunity to teach them a little bit of American history uh, in the process. And we talked about the Revolutionary War and uh, found a relative that we had that was their, I guess, their seventh great, 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 I don't know if I got all seven in, but grandfather on, on my mother's side uh, who actually fought in the Revolutionary War from not, from 1776 to 1780. Um, so pouring that into them and having a chance to talk about uh, a cause greater than yourself yeah. and being there for your family, helping set priorities, all of those are things that are, are critical. And I would just urge young families to, to think about those things and and set those boundaries. Today, to your point, plenty of options, not a shortage of options. In fact, as parents, we always felt like our job was to increase the options that our kids have so they just have opportunity. Plenty of those today. You've got to know where to draw the boundaries and draw
0: the lines and say, here's the priorities. Yeah, and we're we're having those conversations at my (laughs) house right now. Mine are obviously younger. I understand. Um, We've got one that's we're having those you know if we're going to play sports we know the we know the priorities right um i won't go into all of that but we're having some some deep conversations at the house uh, right understand. now and uh, thankfully um our, the one that we're having the conversation with now is um much much better at his age than i would have been so it's uh, <laughs> easier conversation to have i'll leave it at that but Good I, I was going to ask you about your family of course you moved into talking about your children your wife beth I think just earlier this, you said 36 years. 36 years.
1: We've been married 36 years this past June 20th, yeah.
0: and um, she's incredible. Yeah, She three, really is. Three children, 10 grandchildren, um, but you kind of moved right into that, and, and we kind of skipped over and started talking about church stuff. But um, <laughs> Call to Salvation, you covered that. What about Call to Ministry? And, and as a pastor, um, myself and talking to you as a pastor for how long now? I've been pastoring 35 years. 35 years. Um, Safe to say you've probably seen it all. Um, (laughs) A lot of it. We won't won't talk about all that today. I always think that until tomorrow. Right. I'll see something new. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so one of the things that I want to talk about or you to talk about is your personal call to ministry. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that um, I remember as a child, maybe as a teenager, oftentimes they were, it seemed like there were more people being called into ministry right uh and i know from a pastor standpoint we we look at that and we're like well what's happened it's almost yeah. like what's happened to salvations right used to right. see this used to see that what happened god didn't change so what sure. changed and sure. we know some of those answers but uh fortunately we're seeing now in our church we've got two or three young men who are um exploring if you will one's answered the call to ministry and and i won't go into great detail but i feel like. Um, a younger generation has kind of changed what our perception of being called into ministry is, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe lessened the value of it. Mm-hmm. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. So what what did that look like in your life? Being called by God? I I remember a guy often, who, you know, he he called me out at the wrong time, the wrong place, and he was trying to embarrass me. He didn't like me. I was just the lowly youth pastor, and in front of a group of adults one time in a in a meeting, he said. So how do you know you're called of God? I was like, well, I mean, I, I've got a sharp tongue most of the time. I have to, <laughs> so I had to not say what I wanted, but right, um, I did answer. But you know, the, the real answer was now's not the time to ask that. I'm I'm on staff at this church. I've been here for five years. Now's sure. not the time to ask that question. But um, people want to know what what does that look like? What does right. that sound like? And how how did it happen? Uh, and really, just for the help of young teenagers, young adults today who are maybe grappling with, is God calling me to ministry? What's that look like? So I always like to hear pastors sure. say, what would that look like in their life? Well, and, and it was a pretty unique, um, well, a very unique, I think, in many ways.
1: Um, but I'll say this to a young person that is, is feeling drawn to things of ministry, being drawn to serving in, in, the, in the local church, that's the breeding ground. That's where God kind of starts to prepare your heart. I certainly didn't know that. I, as I told you earlier, I grew up in, in a Christian home, grew up in a solid church, grew, came up through a great youth group, uh, went through Disciple Now all weekends, all that kind of stuff. But ministry was never part of my plan. It was never anything that I thought I would do. In fact, I was like everybody else. I was starting to think, what do I want to do? What is my career going to be? And for me, I wanted to be an attorney. That was what I had planned to do. And so, um, you know, I followed the route, even though I was active in my church, active in my youth group and serving at our church. Um, when time came to go to college, I uh, went to Appalachian State University. Time came to declare a major majored in political science because uh, that's what everybody that's going to law school seemed to major in. Uh, and so I majored in that at that particular time and uh, took the LSATs. But God was ordering my footsteps in ways I didn't see. He uh, took me to work with um, a summer missions program. And actually, in all reality, I missed the cutoff date to do summer missions. And while I was at App State, I was active in the Baptist Student Union. That's where I met Beth. Uh, We were both on a singing team called Dedications that traveled and did retreats on the weekends. There were eight of us on the team, four guys and four girls, and we traveled and did all of these uh, youth retreats basically for churches in in, uh, western North Carolina for the most part. But... um, God was even using all of that to prepare me. So my after my freshman year, a lot of my friends were doing summer missions. That was back when the state convention would, uh, would help supplement smaller churches that couldn't have a youth minister. And so for 10 weeks, people would go on mission and they would go do a youth ministry for the most part or children's ministry in a local church and the church would pay part of it and the state convention would pay part of it. And that was the way the person worked for the summer. Well, I missed the cutoff, so I didn't get to do that. So I went back home. I My freshman year worked at Thermcraft and uh, was going crazy after two weeks of just pulling heating elements out and and stuff. And um, I was on a uh, coaching church, our youth softball team, and so um, as a freshman in college. So I went there and got to talking with a guy that was umpiring who happened to be a pastor. And I was telling him, He said, What are you doing this summer? I told him, and I said, I really should have done summer missions, but I didn't. And I, I wish I would have. And he said, Well, you know. He said, I got a pastor friend that just today said he was looking for a guy just to work with their youth for the summer. Would you be interested in talking to him? I said, absolutely. So he got on the phone, called his friend. His friend said he'd love to talk to me. This was like Monday night was the softball night. So on Tuesday, I talked to the pastor by phone, and he said, well, can you come tomorrow night and just kind of meet with our our youth committee and, and talk about what you might do for the summer? So sure enough, I went. And the next Sunday, I was there at that church and, and doing youth ministry for the summer. And God just really worked in that, Dean. And, but again, he was working in that, and I was enjoying what I was doing. It was kind of an extension of the youth experience I would had that I was now bringing to these other young people, these teenagers in high school. And it was out at Glenview Baptist Church in Winston-Salem or Kernersville, actually. And so we were having a great time. And God was working in my heart during that. Well, but again, I was headed to law school. So I went back to Appalachian for my sophomore year. The church had asked me if I would come on weekends and continue in youth ministry and work full-time in the summers. So I did that for several years. God then brought me to Edgewood Baptist Church. And when I went to Edgewood to do the youth ministry there, they had had some issues at Glenview at that particular time. I went to Edgewood. God put me in the position with a guy named Richard Hicks. Richard was the pastor at Edgewood Baptist Church. I had never sat under a preacher at that point that was an expository preacher that was a strong inerrantist, um, and, and me being at the age that I was really taking everything in mm-hmm. that, that I began to take in. And I saw ministry at a whole different level and in a different way. And... um Move then, after just only about probably eight months of that, I'm coming up on finishing school. I'm coming on, up on uh, been accepted to Campbell University Law School. I'm coming up on June 1987. Beth and I are getting married, and I'm to start law school in the fall of 87. And two weeks before our wedding in June, two months before I was to start law school, uh, somebody give me a tape and uh, there at Edgewood and it was a sermon by a guy named Anthony Compolo Anthony's not the most conservative guy in the world but he did preach a sermon that was called it's Friday but Sunday's coming and it was a takeoff of a black pastor that he had co- pastored with up in Philadelphia and he um, he he shared in this message, and there was one part in that message that he was talking about the rich young ruler that had come to Christ and said, "I've done all of these things, these commandments. Uh, what what do I need to do be saved?" And Jesus looked at him and he said, "Well, I'll tell you what. You need to take everything you own, sell it, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me." And Compolo in that message pointed out clearly that um, Jesus had x-ray vision. It wasn't that he was calling him to be a street guy. He wasn't calling him to be penniless and be homeless. But he was calling him to give up what was more important to him than anything else in order for Jesus to be the most important. Because I do think, in so, and, and that spoke to me, because I think so many times we, we take Jesus and just add him to what we consider other important things in our lives. He doesn't want to be alongside the other important things in our lives. He wants to be king of kings, lord of lords in our lives. Right. And and everything else falls in that order. So if I listen to that tape once, I listened to it a thousand times. It was in my car back when we had cassettes. in yes. and, and that, I so We might need to explain to some people
0: what a cassette is. A cassette a ta- tape. A tape you when you tape. said that. That's, That's right. right. That's
1: exactly right. I forget. I'm, I've dated myself. But I put that cassette in the car, and I would listen to it when I was running, driving around Winston-Salem. And it was one morning. I listened to it again. and And I didn't know why that part was just eating at me. Because I certainly didn't come from a wealthy family. I mean, da- Dad worked at uh, Container Corporation making car gated boxes. Mom taught preschool uh, at Messiah Moravian Preschool in Winston Salem. Certainly was not a blue blood, didn't come. I wasn't a ruler in any way. Um, what was it? And God impressed on my heart sitting at a stoplight at what used to be Silas Creek Parkway and Corporation Parkway uh, before they reconfigured traffic there in Winston. But at that stoplight, God made it clear to me, Mark, all I'm saying is, I want everything. I want all of your gifts. I want all of your talents. I want everything surrendered to me so that I'll use you in, in a powerful way. And I, I literally bowed my head at that stoplight, and I said, Lord, this is it. If, if, if you want me to give everything to you and, and to follow you in the ministry uh, instead of going to law school, this is what I'll do. I mean, I tried to bargain with him. I tried to say, Lord, I'm, I'm going into family law, and I'm going to try to help these families or whatever. He said, no, 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 no. I want all of you, and that's exactly what I I committed. And so Beth was teaching, actually. Uh, again, we're two weeks before our wedding, and she is teaching right up the road there. In the last uh, couple weeks before school's out in June of 1987, and it was at Philo Middle School. I turned and went up the road, Oak Drive, to Philo Middle School, went to her classroom, knocked on the door, and uh, she had her kids reading. She came to the door, and I said, you have a second? And she said yes, and she stepped out in the hall, and I said, look, I know you don't have time to talk. We'll go into it more in depth, but I just want you to know um, our plans are going to have to change. I'm not going to law school. I'm, I'm going to seminary. God's made that very clear in my heart. That's what I'm to do, and I had no idea what she was going to do with that. And I'm so grateful that she threw her arms around me and she said, "Mark," she said, "I am so thankful for what God is doing here." Because she said, "You know," and and later in our conversations, I would learn that she had felt because she didn't get saved till she was 18. She was later in life when she got saved, and she and she really got discipled early uh, and strong and was further along than I was, I, I feel like, in discipleship. And, and she said, I always felt that God was going to use me in ministry in some way and, and that somehow I may be marrying a pastor or missionary or whatever. And she said, but I knew that God had brought us together, and I didn't know how all that was going to mesh. And she said, today, you, you've, just, you've answered the question. And um, so praise God, that's now 36 years
0: later. Yeah, Here we are, and um, I think I think it's safe to say we we all have our own individual as pastors. It's called ministers. Different stories, different oh, experiences, and, and it's safe to say God uses experiences. God uses uh, people, right, uh, and, and situations. And
1: I want I want young people that maybe listening to this that are considering ministry. Just I for me, I'll just say for me because I know as you say it's different for everybody. For me. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to major in religion and I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to do ministry. It's like God was ordering my footsteps, and he tells us in Proverbs that he does that. The footsteps of the righteous are ordered by him. Um, not that we're righteous on our own. Our righteousness is but filthy rags, but our righteousness is in the blood of Christ that has cleansed us and, and made us his own. And, and so I look at that. And, and I realized that God was ordering my footsteps. All I had to do was just be faithful and listen and faithful and listen and do what he was leading you to do. And, and I think those are the ministries that I have seen and witnessed over all of these years that have been the most fruitful, that just were walking with God and God opened doors and they were courageous enough to walk through them.
0: Right. I would agree. One of the things we're doing here is um, that I'm pleased with when I say here, Central Baptist is um, helping you, you, you use the phrase breeding ground earlier. Mm-hmm. We have kids come through We're we're making, we've got interns. Amen. A lot of churches are doing that now, but I have them here on site. So they're learning. It's their church. That's right. Um, we've, we hired recently a ministry assistant. So mm-hmm. he's Going into ministry he preached his first sermon oh, last Sunday night praise the Lord so that's, that's that was awesome. fun uh, absolutely had a crowd come to hear him and um so I, I encourage pastors churches to do that one of the things I've said for years um, especially as youth youth pastors trying to address why kids leave right you know the whole statistics we referred to and and my thought my opinion has been they grew up in a church that wasn't theirs it was their mom's church, their dad's church, their grandparents' church, right? And and we try, and I encourage pastors to try to um, allow their students to be a part of the ministry, so that when they go off to college, they come back to their church. Well, and I think that's wise. You know, used to, uh,
1: I don't think we do it anymore because much as we did. But we used to have Youth Sunday. Oh yeah, uh, Once a year was Youth Sunday. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was impactful because I do remember I, I drew the short straw and was re- responsible to deliver a sermon uh, on a Youth Sunday. And uh, a good friend of mine, Bill Poole, a uh, friend of my mom and dad's, actually he was the um, president of the North Carolina Baptist Retirement Homes way back. Um, and uh, I remember asking Bill, will you, will you help me? develop the sermon. And he did. And it uh, that that was an experience that I found, okay, you know, the Lord can, can use me in this. And that was even before, again, all these other things had taken place. Right. But that goes back
0: when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. And I think I know we could probably talk about this for the next hour if we wanted right. to, That what we need to be doing in the church that we used to do in the church. Yes. But now somehow it became, you know, yeah. unacceptable or it's not I hate to use the word cool, but cool. it's not the cool thing to do That's anymore. Right. It's like, no, it works. There That's were things right. that worked that we don't do anymore. Amen. And now we're seeing the results or the lack thereof. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, to your point, it was it was weird for me. I still consider myself young, although uh-huh. I'll be 50 uh, soon. But um, it was my first experience meeting with the guy who preached his first sermon ever. Oh, yeah. Um, beforehand, you know, and then, then afterwards, kind of the debrief, and we did that uh, yesterday actually. And it was, it's like, well, it was Tuesday. I was like, this is different. And I never, I like this. I yeah. like this. i like this role, <laughs> uh, but, um, but seeing them is it was, it was, uh, very exciting for our church, for him. Amen. And, um, and I think, I think that's what's going to, that's something we need to be doing yes. to address the problems that we're facing in our country now. That's right. And, uh, training up that young generation. So, uh, We've spent a lot of time already, but there's some things I want to get to All mainly right. and kind of transition into that, you know, the um, not just the young, but as pastors, as churches, our involvement, our influence, mm-hmm. our how should we be involved um, in our community, in mm-hmm. our country? Of course, anybody who knows you uh, knows that you've been involved politically. Mm-hmm. Um, even before that, though, you were very involved even as a pastor in, in many uh, aspects of what the world would call politics. Sure. And, and I've got, and I'm sure we could back and forth like mm-hmm. a tennis match uh, opinions about that. And I'm sure we agree, but I, I have found that, um, and I'm sure you have too, there's strong opinions many times, even from church people right. um, who have this idea that we shouldn't be involved. Right. I think personally, we're turning the corner on that for the most part. Uh, but kind of give your wisdom and discernment on what to tell pastors, what to tell Christians, uh, how to be, should we be involved biblically, how we should be involved? I know the answer is yes, we should, <laughs> but maybe if you like, could expound a little more than yes sure. and, and why, and what that's looked like to you and in, in your church or churches in the past and, and movements per se. Well, I, I think you're,
1: uh, right. I'm, I'm hopeful that you are correct in that we are maybe turning a corner on that a little bit. My fear, uh, if, if I can use that word, is we've waited too late. Um, and I think a lot of us are concerned about uh, where we are now. What has it taken? What has it already cost us in terms of of families in terms of the culture. What does it already cost us in terms of our future as a nation because we stayed on the sidelines for too long and because we we listened to those that said, we have no seat at the table in the marketplace of ideas uh, of how we need to govern and how we need to lead and how our communities and our state and our nation need to be shaped. So we've, we've had a lot to overcome. I do think, um, as, as you've alluded to, that maybe folks are waking up now and that we have an opportunity in front of us to, to really get involved. But, but bottom line is, is, just like you have, have said, if, if we're not out there on the field in every area of life, then we're coming short of fulfilling the Great Commission, and fulfilling our call that Christ gave to us in our lives. I mean, there's not an area of life that is off-limits to Jesus. It shouldn't be. It can't be. And, and Jesus was engaged in every area of life. He spoke to the whole issue of marriage. I mean, if anybody thought that it's a political issue, uh, that we got involved in trying to pass a marriage amendment in North Carolina, then you don't know your Bible, and and you don't know the call that God placed on your life. There was nothing political about that. People always look at conservative uh, Christians that get political and they say oh you're you're so you're too involved in these social issues that doesn't that doesn't take any involvement from us that that needs to be left to the politicians no the politicians don't necessarily know the word of god we do know the word of god and our desire is to bring the truth of god's word into the marketplace of ideas and to speak up for it and to stand up for it right. and that's the way communities are built. And that's the way states and nations are built. And I just think that, that Christians have got to be engaged and have got to follow through in every arena. And that includes in the area of public policy, which better known to the layman as politics. Right. And I think we've got
0: to be engaged in that. Yeah. Well, you you use the word there, and I've found myself saying this, that the social issues, mm-hmm. and I think I think one of the tools, and I say this often, one of the tools of our enemy has to has been to make believers, the church, um, buy into these are social issues, but they're really biblical issues. Oh yeah. So just because a politician or a legislature has deemed it social or a law, doesn't mean it's not an issue that the Bible speaks to. Absolutely. You know, we, we've we been going through,
1: I'm doing a Bible study on Wednesday nights right now at Trinity, and, uh, and it's called um, Male and Female, He Created Them. David Clawson, who's actually um, our director for the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, is one of the co-authors. There's three co-authors of this Bible study, and it's an eight-week study. And it's fascinating because it's looking at this whole issue of human sexuality, gender identity, and everything that I'm convinced that our people have got to be equipped. If we're going to equip the saints for ministry, then we better be speaking to these issues. Right. And, and there, there are folks out there that say, oh, that's a political issue. Don't, don't get engaged. Well, listen, when the Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew 19 and they asked him about marriage and divorce, Jesus did what? He immediately took them back to Genesis and said, you know or you've read that God created them male and female. So the very first thing that God took them back to, or Jesus took them back to, was to creation, back to the very foundation. We've lost that. And you and I and every other pastor in America have got to be willing to join uh, and stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, and speak that truth into the culture because it's not happening otherwise. And when they say, well, that's political, no. We're just simply reacting to what's been brought to our front door. I've heard Tony Perkins say a thousand times, our main role at Family Research Council in Washington is to keep the barbarians at the gate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's our role is to keep them back. And listen, more and more of them are getting over the gate and getting through the gate and we've got to understand as the body of christ we've been called to be salt and light we've been called to move the needle we've been called to move the ball down the field use whatever metaphor you want to use but the reaction that we need to have to what's happening in the culture is the Bible says. It's what I've always loved about Franklin Graham. I know Franklin gets a, gets beat up by various sides, but every time I hear a Franklin Graham interview, and the media's gotten to where they don't even go to him as much as they used to because Franklin answers every question beginning with, well, the Bible says, and no. then he quotes the Scripture. Right. The Bible says. Because it's not on our own authority. It's what the truth of God's Word
0: says. Right. Yeah, I find myself probably too often saying, even in church preaching a sermon, um, you you have to blame God for this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at God for this. If if we're speaking that, you've you've alluded several times to Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, and and some may know you have a role there. Can you just kind of, um, kind of expound on on what role you play there now? Sure, I I've been involved with. Uh, Involved with Family Research Council all the way
1: back to when I was pastor at First Baptist Church Charlotte. Uh, That was my first introduction to uh, Family Research Council. And it was during the Marriage Amendment when I first met Tony Perkins and and became engaged and involved with that. Um, I had various roles. Um, Probably what I learned at the Watchman on the Wall conference there uh, led me into uh, An involvement at a level that I never thought I would be, and I know you have a similar experience in your own life from that. Um, but, you know, through the years, I've served as community impact team uh, director uh, here in North Carolina. Um, after everything went down in 2018 and my congressional win, uh, and then the State Board of Elections unwilling to certify uh and i ended up at that point with family research council as the national director of community impact and then general boykin and tony perkins met with me and asked me if i would be willing to step into a new role that they were creating which was a vice president for the association of churches and ministries and that's actually the role that i have now i am vice president of the association of churches and ministries with family research council and what we're doing dean in short is we are finding as i mentioned earlier churches and pastors across the nation that are willing to to stand shoulder to shoulder we've had an incredible pastors network called watchmen on the wall but i think after the 2020 elections and after what we have seen put in place with this administration it became very clear in Tony's heart that this was a time where we really needed to circle the wagons, and we needed to find the churches and the pastors, not just the pastors, but the pastors and their congregations that were willing to associate together and stand together. Because you can have a bunch of pastors that have committed that we'll pray, we'll preach, and we'll partner. But when you have a pastor and the church that says, we want to be associated together with this organization that is standing for life, standing for traditional family, standing for religious freedom. When we want to stand with them for a biblical worldview in our nation, then you've really got something you can work with.
0: Yeah, And in, in that role as the, for churches and ministries, what, what is it that churches can and should be doing? I know we talk about pastors, but you say churches involved. What, what is it that the churches can be doing? Well, I
1: think our churches need to be informed. They, they need to know, and the pastor goes a long ways in doing that. A community impact team goes a long ways in informing the congregation of, of issues that are happening every day. We need to be equipping them. We need to be giving them material. That's one thing that, that Family Research Council specializes in is the material that we're able to produce with our Center for Biblical Worldview. I mentioned George Barna is actually a part of Family Research Council now putting those in the hands of Sunday school teachers, of pastors, of leaders. That Bible study material I just talked about that I'm doing on Wednesday night myself. Uh, Trinity, fortunately or unfortunately, becomes a lab to to really see how all of this works. And i got to tell you, when we got ready to go into that Bible study, I knew we were going into the summer and I said, well, I'm going to order 40 books. Because we have several different Bible studies. And I thought, if I get 35 people on a Wednesday night that are going to be here for this Bible study. That'll be good. I announced it on Sunday. I'd ordered 40 so I'd have a few extra copies. We had 81 people that showed up the first Wednesday night for that class. Uh, We had to order more books, obviously, and get them in. People are so hungry to be equipped to know how to deal because it's happening in their families. And their neighborhoods. So that's what we need to be doing. We need people in our churches running for school board. Uh, I know you ran for school board. You've been successful at it. You're making an impact. We need others in our churches and our communities to come alongside you and and be voices. We need them running for state house and general assembly. You know, I've I've got some thoughts on what our general assembly is doing down there in Raleigh, and I've got some concerns about uh, you know what we're necessarily seeing our priorities. Um, and there's some good things that have been done, don't get me wrong, but you know there's also some things that they don't always talk about that are actually happening that are of great concern to me and should be to the Christians in our community. So we need people that are willing to be engaged and serving and running and, and helping support people who are willing to run.
0: So you, you didn't say a word, but I think I know the answer. How about voting?
1: Oh, voting. Yes. I, I guess I forgot I'm talking to you. Uh, that would be the most specific thing. They've got to register and they've got to vote. I mean, we've identified this group called Sage Cons. It stands for spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives. And when I say we, it's Family Research Council. And these are conservative uh, people that are spiritually—they're active in their church. They—they they support parachurch ministries. They—they're active, uh, actively engaged in and understand current events. They—they're just—they're solid. But and listen, they vote and and are engaged. But we need to increase their number. There's more of them out there that have the spiritually active part. They're just not yet engaged. They're what we call semi sage cons. And and we've got to get them engaged, and every church needs to help us identify them because that's where I think we're going to find them. They're in all of our local churches across this country. Yeah,
0: and and so once again, when we talk to each other, I think I probably know the answer, uh, but I'm interested in hearing you respond. And and for people who would be listening, maybe your thoughts on why why Christians aren't voting? They're
1: overwhelmed. Okay, They're overwhelmed with how far the culture's gone. I had this discussion with a group of about 20 men that I meet with every Wednesday morning for a prayer meeting uh, yesterday morning because one of them was, in, was alluding to the fact, and he was exactly right, that we see all of these things that are unfolding. We see all of the things where the culture is gone, and what can I do? And it was almost to the point that, that I had to say the biggest, biggest tool that I think the adversary is using right now is discouragement and overwhelming us with all the things that are happening. To the point, because I, I, you know, this week when we had these grandchildren together, there's a part of me that for a fleeting moment had to stop and think, you know, if I can just get my brood together. If I can be like that mother hen and I can just take care of my family, maybe that needs to be all I'm focused on. And But we can't do that, Dean. We cannot just take care of our own. We do have to take care of our own, but we've got to be the voice, the consistent voice for truth and righteousness in the public square and in the culture because their young lives, I can't always be with them. And I can't have my brood together under my wing, but I know they're going to be affected by the culture and the public policy and all of that. So I cannot just withdraw. But that's what I feel like is the biggest temptation we have right now. We're overwhelmed, and it's leading to some saying, I I just I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel here. And that's a concern. We've got to be able to share where the victories are happening.
0: So they've, in your opinion, they feel like it's futile. Yes. To vote. It's pointless to vote. It doesn't matter. I think
1: that's that's the word I'm okay. hearing. Yeah. Do we have answers for, yes, it does matter? Oh, I could give you a number of, of instances. I, I can go back to my 2016 race for the 9th District in Congress, and in my primary, when I came up 134 votes short of winning that primary and would have won the general election uh, in 2016. Um, and I've had more than 134 people that I've met since that day that, that didn't realize one the other was telling me the same thing but came up with the various reason. Man, I just hate mm-hmm. when I saw it was that close that I didn't get an opportunity to go out there and vote. And I uh, got tied up this or that or we got sick or where a car broke down and we, we didn't get a chance to vote. Yeah. And, you know, there's races that are so close and everyone makes a difference. When you look at the whole state of Georgia, 12,000 votes uh, made the difference in the presidential race Um, last time. All these races that were so close. I can give you the list right now of the swing states that are coming up in 2024. Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, there we are again, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada. Those seven states will determine the next leader of the free world in 2024. And we have no time to waste yeah. And being engaged in that.
0: Yeah, my, my concern has been that, to your point, people are overwhelmed. They think it's pointless to vote. So they're not voting. And now throw in, and I don't, we don't need to get into this long conversation, but throw in um, voter integrity. Uh, to, now there's fear or, you know, it's not even fair. So oh. now I shouldn't vote. I definitely shouldn't vote. It doesn't, and I hear that from people that should know better. And, and, you know, my, my point is, well, if, even if I know it's rigged, I'm still going to vote because it's my right, and, you know, I'm going to do it for all those who served, you know, the, the whole, you know, I love America routine. But you, you know our
1: story, and you can, and anybody can get the book, 13 Ballots, a Manufactured Scandal to Overturn an Election uh, by Elizabeth Harris. I wrote the epilogue. Uh, Beth wrote the book. Uh, Governor Mike Huckabee wrote the forward to it. We lived seeing the weaponization of a state agency for political purposes and at the state board of elections well, was weaponized and had no real reason in the long and short of it to not certify my race for the 9th district uh, congressional seat in North Carolina in 2018. And we saw 282,000 people's votes just thrown out by a group of five on that agency that, that could have certified that election. And, and there's things that still come out to this day and will come out in the days ahead that show the weaponization for political purposes. We're seeing it at the U.S. Justice Department. Like you said, people just say it, it's just not fair. Now, I would say to people when they listen to this, things have been done to change it. Things have been done to make certain that it is fair, But we've got to hold their feet to the fire. If we don't put people in leadership that are going to make sure that it's done right, I mean, that State Board of Elections that was in control in 2018 was appointed by Governor Roy Cooper. And I lay that board at his feet. Um, And the one prior to to the one he appointed there, uh, he had also been involved in appointing after his election in 2016. and, And that was made up of nine members. And, and again, they controlled the majority of it, and they knew they had the numbers to do what they wanted to right. do. So again, elections matter. And if we don't all show up and overwhelm the ballot box with votes for truth and righteousness and voting our values, then we're going to come up short. Because yeah. if you run a close one, yeah, you may get cheated out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mine was 905 votes that I won that race by. There were never a question uh, statistically that there were enough ballots even in question to over change or change the outcome of that election, which had always been kind of the golden rule. But again, um, you cannot quit voting because if we quit
0: voting, you've just given them what they're after to start with. Right. Right. Well, um, our time has been good. And, um, but I I don't want to, I don't want to quit without at least talking about right now. Um, of course, anybody who pays attention to the political world knows there's a, I think it's fair to say 2024 is going to be quite interesting, uh, um, major <laughs> a lot of things I'd like your input on just for people who are listening and it may, may need to be persuaded one way or the other, even on voting, uh, on being involved, um, there's a number of candidates already. Mm-hmm. The fun question would be, who's your pick so far? <laughs> just for fun. I, I know I've got a one or two that I'm – what What do you think about what's happening? And this is just for fun. Feel free to say what you want to say or not – don't say what you don't want to say. Um well, I will say, uh, and this is this is very important to to make clear. Because of my role at
1: Family Research Council, we are not endorsing in the primary. Uh, so I'll I'll probably keep those thoughts uh, to myself. I do think uh, President Trump, as obviously to any onlooker, uh, is continuing to to poll extremely strong uh, in the states. I think Governor DeSantis, obviously. Um, I'm seeing the same numbers you are, uh, is the only one at this point that tends to demonstrate that, that he would even be, and it's not even a close second at this point, but it's early. And, and I do know that we're going to see things continue to unfold, uh, into January and the Iowa caucuses. Uh, but I do think it's going to be a, a very important race. Uh, and I think people have got to stay engaged. I think they've got to listen, um, there, there were a lot of great things that came out of the first Trump administration. And many of us voted for a second Trump administration in 2020. Um, and I think that he's got a record to run on, and I, that's very impressive. Um, but I also know that there are other factors that are figuring into this that folks are, are really weighing out. Um, but I think when we get to, through the nomination process, the the choice will have never been clearer than what we're going to have going into the fall of twenty four.
0: Yeah, I, of course I would agree with that, um, but I'm worried to an extent. Um, I, th- I think people have had enough of him. I agree. Uh, oh, I, there's plenty of plenty of that mindset out there. And and I'm personally, you know, I've I've already told people if if he wins. I will vote for him. Sure. Um, But deep down in the recesses of my heart, I hope I don't have to. Um, But I will, and he has done a lot, and I think that's what the church needs to see, believers need to see. Uh, We see the persona. We see the superficial of him just not being anything what we would like for him to be personally. Correct. But then when you look at Supreme Court, probably the biggest thing he ever did and the only thing that's really helped curb a disaster in our country or or at least prevent it for a while no question um we i'm a, i'm fearful that if he wins the elect if he wins the primary Christians won't vote for him this time and i know that's something that's every christian everybody who's involved knows or is maybe trying to address but uh, to your point it couldn't be more clear oh not right. just to conservative christians not just to republicans but to someone with a little bit of common sense it couldn't be more clear but there were a lot of people that had a lot of wounds after 2016
1: um that were concerned in that race there were a lot of folks that uh in fact i we had a rally here for ted cruz and y'all hosted here uh back in 2016 and um there were a lot of wounds even coming out of that convention um that that happened uh, but I, I do think people realized the reality in 2016. And to your point that you made earlier, I, I just ask people to stop and imagine, as bad as things are right now, if we had not shown up in 2016 and and elected uh, him to that office and we had had Hillary Clinton as president, um, there, there would... I I don't think we would be having this conversation right now about the even the hope of turning our nation back around because yeah. I I think you you would not have a Supreme Court that would ever rule in our lifetime maybe um, because those replacements
0: that she would have gotten right it is what it is yeah some somehow and I think you know this somehow I got a call from the ABC like national news. Right before Trump. Did you know this? I can't remember. Uh-huh. I was interviewed, and on the prime time, like, they, it was the weirdest thing ever. No, I don't think I knew this. And—it's um, ABC or CBS? I can't remember. Uh, there's footage of it. Okay. Uh, we met at the townhouse uh, uh-huh. restaurant and another couple from our church, and it was prior to Trump being elected. He was running— of course, we had had Ted Cruz here. I was a Ted Cruz fan until I had to vote for him. Right, And um, they asked me the question, like, from a conservative Baptist pastor. The phone call that came to the office was the weirdest part because I was like, I thought it was a prank. But a few days later, we're sitting with lights and camera, and they asked me. Um, they basically gave the litany of all the terrible things Donald Trump was. Sure. And said, "You would still vote for him," and asked why. And and my my answer was, "Supreme Court choices." And who nobody knew then that he would have a chance mm-hmm. to nominate more than one, and get three, and Absolutely. get three, uh, two at best, and end up with three. Right. And her response was kind of shocking; like she was shocked I said that. And she said, "You would vote for him just for that reason." I said, "Absolutely." If he'll do what he said he says he's going to do, and and I I've tried since then to convince my friends, believers, church members, there's a reason there you can make a difference. Hmm. Like because there, I the common response is I don't even vote. You you look at election results and people don't hmm. even vote for federal a lot That's of right. times. It's like it don't matter, right? It's like what well, the president kind of does matter. Sure. And, people think, how can that affect me locally? And now you look at the rulings from this Supreme court that's right. just in the last month. That's right. And, um, hopefully that's an eye opener to people to say, this was worth it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, you see the stickers, Yeah, I'd like a few mean tweets right now, right. you know, instead <laughs> of this. And, and hopefully people are seeing as it trickles down, right. um, that it does matter. Right. And, um, like it or not, like what he says or does, you know, on the side, but, um, Anyway, and we
1: don't even know, we don't know until next yeah. June of oh, 24
0: yeah. if we have to have that conversation. Yeah, I'm am, I am a firm believer a lot's going to change. There's um, a lot of movement. On both sides. A lot
1: of movement that will happen. Oh, yeah. I Listen, I've told people many times, if you're a student of history and you go back to 1968, it's fascinating to me. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson suddenly decides he's not going to run for president. Um, the Democrats are having their convention in Chicago. They're going to be back in Chicago in 2024, um, and uh, you know what's going to happen if if suddenly Biden uh, doesn't run, can't run, uh, or his own party turns him out to pasture, uh, or all of know, the above, all of the above, any of that could happen. So I, you know, go back and study the 1968 Democrat convention and and see if that maybe gives you a little lens into 2024 uh, in Chicago. Interesting. Just I'll do that give that a thought.
0: Well, Dr. Harris, I appreciate your time. I know you're a very, very busy man. Your phone's been going off nonstop during this. I've got a few, That's but okay. um, I. it goes without saying, we. I appreciate you personally. You've been a friend to me um, through everything. I've uh, been someone I can look up to. You spoke at my church. Uh, hope we'll do that again, maybe soon. And um, appreciate your influence. You, to me, this podcast and, and the purpose of the podcast being the impact podcast, identifying people who are making an impact. I think you stand tall above many yeah. other people that I know who are doing exactly what I believe God's called us to do. And I know you've been through a lot. Um, and if we're going to be in this fight, we're going to continue to go through a lot. Amen. And so I appreciate your faithfulness and uh, what you mean to me, what you mean to our church. Our church loves you and um, supports you and appreciates all you do. And uh, just, again, thank you for for being here and for and all you've done for me. And all you're doing for our our state and our country we appreciate it well dean you're a champion buddy and you've
1: been a champion for the calls of christ you've been a champion for standing in the uh public square i can't tell you how many times i use you as the example uh when i'm talking to a pastor because you've done it i mean you you've gotten involved you've you've run you've stood uh you're not only do you stand strong in the pulpit but you're standing strong in the public square and you um, your your textbook what we're trying to get across to folks, the importance of what it means. And so uh, we love you and love this church and their support of you in in, uh, helping you and and allowing you to do what you do, I think is is critical. And uh, may God's blessings continue to be on you. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you
0: for listening today. Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina is making an impact for the cause of Christ. Come, Worship with us. Visit our website at cbckannapolis.com for more information about our ministries impacting our families and community.